You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Thank you, everyone. You're, obviously, you're not surprised that this is only part one. <laughs> but uh, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the word of God is true. And because it's true, it changes us, but it changes us as we know it, as we dig into it, as we understand it, as we make it part of ourselves. And the depth, I've talked so many times in the past about the depth of John's gospel. It's, um, they say it's a, a, a pool shallow enough for a baby to paddle in and a river deep enough for an elephant to swim in. There's so much depth in John's Gospel. It's exciting, actually, to dig into. Um, but it's also easy to get to caught up in little bits. I'll try not. To, I'll try and tie everything together for you. So this morning we come to the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And because we don't have the overheads this morning, I've printed out uh, most, uh, well, the first half, roughly, of John chapter 3. There's uh, pages there for you to follow along with. Chances are even your non-Christian friends know John 3.16. It is the it is quoted and misquoted, used and abused. It's used to support all sorts of wrong teachings. And uh, people try to make it say things that it doesn't say to support their own philosophies. But what it does say, you won't be surprised to find, is so profound that it deserves to be famous. So we'll start by looking at the larger context of John 3.16. We'll look at the surrounding passage, which is what's on your printout. Uh, Remember that Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again. Not the option, but the necessity of being born again if he's to have any hope of seeing or entering the kingdom of God. And starting uh, in John 3 verse 7, Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 3.16 is rightly famous. It speaks to the non-Christian about who God is. It speaks about what he has done and why someone should seek him. It helps the evangelist to reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ. It provides assurance to the believer about his or her own security and their destiny. And it's a warning to all who would reject God. John 3.16 and the verses around it are so important, so deep, that I think we should camp around them for a few weeks. So today I'm going to give you a quick overview of the verse and some of the things you might want to be thinking about when you read John 3.16. My hope and my prayer is that that this will provide you some of the tools to help you in your own Bible reading, your devotions in your prayer life. So what are some of the questions you might ask when you're reading this verse? Well, what is it that motivates God to offer eternal life to anyone? Surely God is sufficient in himself. He doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need to offer eternal life. What is it that motivates him to do it? Why can't we find eternal life ourselves? Why does it have to be God's work, not our work? What does it mean that God so loved? And when it says that God loved the world, who or what exactly is the writer talking about? Now we know that God gave his son to be executed, to be crucified as a common criminal. But does that mean God is guilty of cosmic child abuse, as some people have suggested? And if not, why not? Isn't everybody already a child of God? If not everybody, then certainly Christians are called sons of God in the Bible. Why then does it say that Jesus is God's only son? And what's all this talk about perishing? Surely if God is love, everybody will go to heaven. That's only fair, isn't it, if God is love? Now obviously we're not going to answer all of these questions this week, but uh, we'll spend whatever time necessary over the next number of weeks, whatever that stretches out to, to try and answer them. And the answers, though, will help you make more sense of what you read in the rest of your Bible. As I said, the last several weeks we've been looking at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about being born again, and Jesus was adamant that Nicodemus, and by extension us, have to be born again and born from above if we're going to see or enter the kingdom of God. The new birth is a work of God, something Nicodemus was unable to do, something we're unable to do. We can't born ourselves again. New birth would change Nicodemus' ancestry, his lineage, and that's something that Nicodemus couldn't do himself. New birth would give him a new father, but Nicodemus was powerless to bring that about himself. But then paradoxically, Jesus tells Nicodemus that there is something he has to do. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he must look to that cross and he must believe. God doesn't believe for us. We have to believe. 
Now if you've got a red leather Bible, one of those that prints the words of Jesus in red text, you might get to John 3.16 and find all that 16 through to 21 is written in red. Some Bibles do, some don't. Some stop at the end of verse 15 with the red. The general consensus among those who study John's Gospel is that Jesus is speaking up to the end of verse 15 and then John is providing commentary from verse 16 onwards. It's no longer Jesus' words. It's not super important either way. But I'm in, personally, I'm inclined to agree with him. When I read verse 15, it says the Son of Man must be lifted up, future tense. In verse 16, it says God so loved the world that he gave, past tense, his only Son. That suggests to me that verse 15 is John recording Jesus' words that were spoken at the time, and verse 16 onwards is John inserting his commentary about as he looks back to the cross. Now, as I say, I'm not too fussed about it, except for an important warning. Be careful, if you're reading a red-letter Bible, that you don't allow the colour of the text to determine who's actually speaking and therefore decide what words are important and what words aren't. There's a tendency for some people to focus exclusively on the red letters. Jesus said this, therefore it must be important. I can afford to ignore the rest. There's some that go so far that we even pick and choose amongst the red letters and decide, well, I think Jesus said this, but he didn't really say that. Someone else has made that up. That's uh, people who come to those conclusions have no real evidence that Jesus did say this and didn't say that. It's based, yeah, it's based on their own impressions and what they like and what they don't like about what they're reading. Um, so my warning would be not to get sucked into that sort of rubbish. For two millennia, people have been trying to pick the Bible apart, trying to say Jesus did say this and didn't say that. Jesus did perform that miracle, he didn't perform that one. 2,000 years people have been doing that and they've failed. They still fail and they will always fail. And why will they always fail? Because all of scripture is God-breathed. All of it. Not just the red letters. Every word of it is breathed out by God. And the word of God is powerful. It will accomplish, it says in Isaiah, that which he sends it to do. Don't let all that rubbish get you sucked in. The word of God will withstand every attack no matter how long the world goes on for. We should have great confidence in the word of God. We can trust what it says. So anyway, verse 15 may be the end of Jesus' words, but it doesn't mean that verse 16 stands in isolation from it, as if verse 16 was a new idea unconnected with verse 15. Rather, Verse 16 is John's explanation of what came before. And there's one tiny little word at the start of verse 16 that you mustn't miss. For. Tiny word. You can brush over that without thinking about it. Connecting words are important in scripture. Don't ignore them. Don't rush over them too quickly. We all have our favourite verses, of course, ones we've memorised, And much modern preaching is topical preaching where I'll choose a topic I want to preach on and then I'll find all these verses that support that from different places around the Bible. And uh, and much preaching that we 
here, including my own, focuses on small portions of scripture. We can sometimes imagine that the Bible is just like a book of quotable quotes, things that are not connected with each other but all sound good. And we can miss the flow of the story. So before you point out the obvious, I realise that's exactly what I'm doing this morning, focusing on just a few words of John 3.16. But hopefully, as I said, I can eventually tie it all together for you and give you the tools that will help you as you read the Bible. Anyway, when you come across words like for, and, but, therefore, at the start of a sentence, they're important words because they connect what came before that with what's about to come now. There's an old saying that goes, when you read therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? It's there because it's connecting those two discussions, those two thoughts. Connecting words are important. And 4 connects verse 16 with the previous conversation in verse up to verse 15. John's about to explain why the Son of Man was lifted up. What was it that motivated God to give his only begotten Son to be lifted up? Let me give you another clue that verse 15 leads directly into verse 16. This will help when you're reading other passages as well. Verse 15 says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When you see repetition of words or phrases, you know connecting similar thoughts or similar stories. John Piper, if you want to see how this works, John Piper has done a number of videos, only brief eight or ten minute videos, that are available online to show that in action, to show how things tie together and how you get the understanding of a passage by understanding how the different words and phrases are connected to each other. If you do a search, a Google search for Look at the Book by John Piper, you'll see exactly what he's done. He's got, I'm not sure how many, there's probably a couple of dozen he's done so far of those. So anyway, verse 16 is a continuation of the first part of chapter 3. So that means we need to understand what it is that Jesus has already said about being born again and about looking to the cross in faith. I talked about this in a recent series of messages and uh, if you missed them, they're available on our podcast. Um, And there's uh, for those who haven't looked up the podcast, if you do a podcast search for City Edge Church, it'll come up and we've got messages back for the last 18 months or something on there. Or there'll be a link in, there is always a link in the newsletter to it as well. So the first 15 verses of John chapter 3 lay the foundation for verses 16 and onwards. As Moses, it says in verse 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we could summarise and paraphrase the first half of chapter 3, maybe to say something like, you must be born again. You must be born from God if you want to get into heaven. Your ancestry, your religion, your good works won't save you. The sin that infects your human nature separates you from God. Only a work of the Holy Spirit that changes you from within will suffice. But just like the people had to look 
in faith to the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness to live. When you see Jesus Christ crucified, you must look to him in faith. You must believe. And this is the motivation behind the crucifixion. God so loved the world. That's why Jesus was lifted up, because God was expressing his love. So how does crucifying the Son of Man demonstrate God's love for us? As I mentioned earlier, some consider the cross to be cosmic child abuse, if it's understood in the traditional Orthodox Christian way. Hopefully we'll get to that in a later passage. But verse 16, for God so loved the world. Does so mean that that God has had enormous amount of love for the world? Does it refer to the intensity of his love? Or does it refer to how he demonstrates that love? He demonstrated in this way. Now you probably know me well enough to know it by now to know that the answer is yes. <laughs> it means all of those things. And you probably also recognise, as we've been going through John's Gospel, that John frequently uses words in ways that can have two meanings. They can have a surface meaning and a deep meaning. They can have a certain suggestion about darkness and light, for example. It can be moral darkness, spiritual darkness, earthly darkness or light. John uses words in two ways. And Mel will often say to our grandkids, how much does Nana love you? I love you this much and stretches her arms out as wide as she can go. Mel so loves them. And God shows the extent of his love, the intensity of it by giving his only son. It's an interesting parallel, don't you think, that Mel stretches her arms out wide to say, I love you this much. And Jesus did exactly the same on the cross. Stretched his arms out to demonstrate love. God shows us what love means by demonstrating it on the cross. And he shows us that love is more than just a nice feeling, even a really powerful nice feeling. Real love is demonstrated in practical ways. Real love does something for the other person. Real love is more than just an affectionate feeling. Unless you think that Jesus dying on the cross for us is not practical demonstration of love, let me remind you, that the cross is the means that God uses to solve our greatest problem, that of sin and alienation from God. There is no problem more serious than that for any of us. And if that problem doesn't get solved, none of our other problems matter. Doesn't, I don't care what they are. If you don't solve the problem of your sin and alienation from God, nothing else matters. The cross is a practical demonstration of love. Interestingly, John talks about love more than any other New Testament author. Roughly a third of the references to love in the New Testament come from John's pen. He's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved at least five times in his gospel. So I suspect John might know a little bit about love. It was John who wrote in John chapter 15... Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It was John who also wrote in his letter, 1 John 3.16, interestingly enough, 
John wrote, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The breadth, the depth, the intensity of God's love was demonstrated on that cross. The cross is the means, the only means, which by which God could punish sin and at the same time extend mercy. I've talked in the past about how Jesus Christ was executed as our representative, as our substitute, all because we inherited the spiritual DNA, so to speak, of our first father, Adam, back in the garden. So sin is a part of our human nature. But we might protest, I haven't done anything really bad. A few white lies, I just fiddled my tax return. I haven't done too much that's bad. They're not serious sin, surely. Or we could be tempted to say that if God was really loving, he would turn a blind eye to my sin. He would let me off simply because he is loving. God is love. He must forgive. That's his job. But it was James, who was one of Jesus' brothers, who wrote, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Sin is sin. There's no two ways around it. Ultimately, there are no degrees of sin. Some sin might hurt other people or hurt yourself more. But ultimately, there's no degrees of sin in God. Sin is sin. And all of sin is serious in the sight of a righteous judge. Now, none of us want to be judged ourselves, of course, but we still expect judges to be righteous, don't we? (laughs) At least righteous towards other people, not to us, please. Hardly a week goes by where we don't hear a news report of someone committing a brutal and serious crime and getting released on bail or getting let off with what amounts to a slap on the wrist with a wet leather sleeve. And what's your reaction to that? Usually it's outrage, isn't it? You are outraged that such a crime could be committed and the judge not take it seriously. So should God be less righteous than a human judge? Should God be less righteous when the crimes committed against him are far more serious, far more heinous? God must punish sin because he's holy and he has set the standard that we must live up to and that standard is perfection. Now there's a challenge. You want eternal life? Be perfect. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If God were to to accept anything less than that, he'd be an unrighteous judge. But if he were to pour out his punishment on us, the punishment that we deserve, we could not bear it. We would be instantly destroyed. Therefore, God demonstrates his love for the world by implementing the plan that he had formed before the foundation of the world. This wasn't a, oh, heck, things are going wrong. I better work out a way around this. God had put this plan into place before creation. And that plan was to give his only son to deal with sin. That plan meant that the penalty of sin will be paid, his justice will be satisfied. 
but it's paid by a substitute. It's paid by another lifted up. It's paid by one who did not deserve to be punished. You remember when we looked last week, I think it was, at Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. It was a bronze serpent that Moses fashioned to lift up. When people looked at that in faith, they were healed of the the venom that was coursing through their veins. That serpent wasn't the poison. It wasn't the real serpent. It contained no poison itself. Jesus Christ was lifted up without sin. No poison in him. That we should look to him in faith as our substitute, our representative. You may recall I've talked many times about the concept of federal headship. It's a good theological term. It's a good term to learn. Federal headship. Adam was our federal head. He was our representative when he ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. And when he sinned, he plunged all his ancestors, which is you and I, sorry, descendants, all his descendants, into sin. Plenty of people get upset about this idea. Why am I responsible for Adam's sin? That's not fair. But that's okay. If you don't like the idea of being responsible for Adam's sin, just be responsible for your own. Does that help? (laughs) It doesn't help, does it? Because you're responsible for your own sin, then you must bear the punishment for it. And let me tell you, you can't bear it. But the cross demonstrates to us that someone else was willing to accept responsibility for your sin and for my sin. Someone else was willing to be our representative, our federal head, so that the sin that we're unable to be rid of ourselves and unable to to pay for could be paid for in full. If you reject the concept of Adam's federal headship of the human race, you must also reject the concept of Christ's federal headship for you because it's based on Adam's representation. If you want to understand more about that, read Romans chapter 5. It talks fairly clearly about that. It's the pattern the Bible has set for salvation, that there is a representative and Jesus Christ is our representative. The proof of God's love is that he acted on it. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got our act together, because we couldn't. And Romans 3.19 tells us, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This was to show, down in verse 26, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross is the evidence 
that God deals with our sin. That God is enforcing the penalty that was set for sin right from the very beginning. And the cross is the evidence that God had a plan for dealing with our sin from before any of us were created. And the resurrection is the evidence that God is satisfied that the penalty is paid in full on behalf of those who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the evidence. If you've ever been in love, then you know how it felt the first time the person you were falling in love with said to you, I love you. It was like an explosion of joy in your heart, most likely. Words are important. But as wonderful as those words are, they're not the only reason that we know someone loves us. In fact, they're probably not even the main reason we know that someone loves us. We know, we really know, when we see that love demonstrated in tangible ways and consistently. God reveals his love for us by the words of scripture, but he demonstrated his love for us in the cross. Don't you think it's amazing that God should seek us out? If there's one thing the Bible teaches us, it's that mankind, by nature, doesn't seek after God. We can't because we're flesh, and flesh gives birth to flesh, and flesh can't stand in God's sight. Flesh is fallen and unspiritual. It's why we need the new birth. We need a new nature, a new heart. We need a different father. We need to be born of God himself. But we're unable to do that. So God sent his son to mankind, born fully human, living fully as a man, experiencing all the trials, the temptations, the struggles we face, yet without sin. He took on humanity. God was manifested in the flesh. Paul puts it in 1 Timothy again, (laughs) 3.16. And he was lifted up on the cross and executed like a common criminal in the sight of all Jerusalem. He was crucified in the likeness of sinful flesh. And why did it happen? Because God so loved the world. That's the reason that the word was manifested in the flesh. It's the reason why the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst men. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So we take the bread and the juice this morning. You have eternal life because Jesus has done a work on that cross on your behalf. It is finished, he said, when he's hanging on that cross. There is nothing more to be paid. So if that doesn't give you good enough cause to worship, 
this one who was lifted up in the likeness of sinful flesh. I don't know what would. So Father, this morning we give you thanks that you so loved the world, you so loved each and every one of us, that you gave your son to be lifted up as a common criminal, your wrath against sin poured out on him, absorbed by him. And the only thing left for us, Lord, who put our faith in Jesus is your grace, your mercy, your love, your goodness. Lord, this morning, we give you thanks. We worship you with all our heart, our soul, our mind and our strength this morning, Lord. Because you, Jesus, are worthy of that worship. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided evidence of your love in the cross. And whenever we gather together to share communion, we're reminded this is evidence, Lord, this reminder that uh, that you have done the work necessary on our behalf, the work that we could never do, that you are a righteous judge, but you have found a way, Lord, to save us. So we thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying these things to our hearts. Lord, we pray this coming week that each and every one of us here will know your goodness, will know your grace, your mercy as we go through life. Lord, whenever we stray this coming week from paths of righteousness, Holy Spirit, would you tap us on the shoulder and say, don't go that way. Come on back onto this path. Lord, I pray that you don't let us stray too far. And Lord, I pray that you'll open doors this week for us to share our faith with others. Lord, would you provide opportunities and would you so write the good news of Jesus Christ on our hearts that we have words to speak when we find those opportunities. Lord, I pray your blessings over all of my brothers and sisters here, Lord. And I pray that you'll keep us safe this coming week till we gather again next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.